Welcome to another episode of This Week with Sabir. In today's hot seat is Chris Arndt. Uh, he is a CFO expert, and we will uh, let me tell you a little bit about him before we start uh, tackling some deep dive questions. Uh, Chris is the entrepreneur's CFO, also known as the director of ORBAs uh, or Cloud CFO Services, an outcome of the company he founded in 2011, Red Granite. For over 15 years, Chris has been harnessing the latest technology and sharing his accounting expertise with his clients to anticipate their needs and ensure the growth of their bottom line. Chris specializes in financial statement, analysis, systems implementation, dashboard design, a business process improvement, and professional development. He has had a knack for uh, quickly understanding the forest, but still having the ability to see the trees. Just as important, Chris enjoys teaching and challenging his team and others to continue their own learning so that they can grow professionally. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sabir. Appreciate you having me. And uh, I guess we gave you quite a mouthful there for the for the bio to, to read. Uh, appreciate <laughs> it, but uh, I think you nailed it. All right, thank you. Well, we, we have a lot of uh, uh, mutual net people in our network, you know, very phenomenal uh, entrepreneurs in, in our history. Uh, and they were both, two, the two people that we overlapped, they were both guests on this show in the earlier seasons. Uh, Habib Salo, he talked from Young Nails, was in season one. And Sasha Der Avanasian was in season two. And he talked about commodity marketplaces. And they are mutual friends of ours. Yes, yes. it's uh, It was great that, well, both of them uh, separately connected us at... at uh, at different times and uh and both great people running great businesses and um my company we've had the pleasure of, of working with with both of them for a few years and learned a lot from them and uh, it's been it's been a good good partnership with 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 both of them and uh i'm glad it brought us together today definitely now i've heard about cfos right i've worked with cfos for many years Right, but you are the entrepreneur's uh, CFO. Uh, so tell us about that journey and how you got to, and 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 you basically niche down on entrepreneurs, and and that's that's a very interesting breed to go after. <laughs> <laughs> so so tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, um, I think if we we go way back, I. Uh... I'm a CPA by education, but I'm really more, I'll call it a, a recovering CPA or a reformed CPA turned entrepreneur uh, myself. And um, so I, uh, you know, I, I, I got a master's in accounting, uh, had a minor in computer science, sort of a double oh. nerd uh, as I was younger, kind of. Major in computer science. Okay. You got the major. <laughs> I got the minor. Love it. Um so I always had that knack for data and understanding that. And then you had, you know, sort of the knack of, of, of reading financial statements as a CPA. Um, so I think that's been a good combination from, from, from early on. And um, as a reformed CPA, I've always thought that accounting is boring by itself, but, but that insight you can get from it can, can be awesome. And especially when we will we'll chat later and talk about some uh, you can't get any of that if you don't have really acts as the foundation for uh, for a lot of our clients. And so 
Um, so like I said, reformed CPA. I started out in public accounting, worked for some investment management firms, uh, including uh, a large single family office. So I was able to always see investments in operating companies from the investors uh, point of view. Uh, I think that gave me uh, a unique uh, perspective. And all along, uh, I had this entrepreneurial itch and, you know, finally it needed to be scratched at one point and uh, decided to take the leap and start my company, which was called um, Red Granite at the time. I started it 11 years ago now, almost to the day, um, 11 years ago and um, took a leap and, and started working with um, other uh, investment offices because that's what I knew and worked with the combination of combining technology with accounting and uh, stumbled on, into getting involved with a very early stage but now very prominent co-working space in Chicago and uh, helped them early on with their accounting um, and we, uh, me and my earliest employees, we worked out of this co-working space um, and we got to work with all these other entrepreneurs that were um, trying to change the world. And so I already knew I had the entrepreneurial itch, but being around other entrepreneurs that were starting up their, their businesses, uh, it was vibrant, it was fun, it was exciting. And uh, that's just who I like to work with. And uh, over the years, we're able to establish that we could, you know, I could grow a business myself and hire people to help um, and, and kind of scale this business uh, by by providing the accounting services and supporting entrepreneurs. Um, our our vision statement is actually to be the foundation for awesome, and and we want to be that foundation, that financial foundation for our clients to grow and uh, and be awesome. And when you started that venture, I mean, it, uh, you, uh, from what I understand, till 2016, and then you, uh, you, you got acquired or you merged with another uh, company? Yeah, so um, grew it for about five years. And then, um, uh, and I was called Red Granite at the time. Then um, I, I really wanted uh, a little more stability in my life. So uh, what I didn't share earlier is when, when I started the company in 2011, uh, also just happened to have my first uh, kid, first son uh, born right around the same time. So not, not great timing, kind of had, you know, raising two at once, I guess, and um, growing really fast. I was reinvesting everything that the business was making back into hiring more people and, and acquiring more cl clients. And, and I hadn't taken any, any money for myself for a couple of years and, and uh, I needed to, to have some stability. And so I was looking for a partner firm and I wanted a partner firm that, that um, shared my vision for, for supporting uh, entrepreneurs. And, and I found that in Orba. Orba is a CPA firm. It's been around for over 40 years uh, based out of Chicago. And uh, I worked with, you know, I had a couple offers on the table. Theirs was the best fit. And uh, Orba has 1,200 clients that they do taxes for, uh, 1,200 business clients that they do taxes for. And I saw that like it's a very um, complementary business and that uh, we could we could cross sell work. So uh, they've been a good partner. Um, it's now been almost six years since they acquired us. And it's, it's, it's been a great partnership since. Oh, very cool. 
Now, uh, you said something really important, and I want to pick on that a little bit, you know. Um, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, people that want to get into businesses, right, they, they tend to think about income immediately, right? They think about, oh, I'm going to, if I start this, start selling this widget on Amazon, I'm going to have a positive cash flow. It's going to have a lifestyle. That's what a lot of YouTube videos show you, you know? And, and you know, owners stand, sitting in front of Ferraris, you know, probably they rented it, you know, <laughs> they don't even own it. Um, but that's the message that it sends them. And and you just said, like, look, I was in this venture for five years, right? And and having some sort of an income, some kind of stability and cash flow, uh, it takes time. Like you have to, as, as an entrepreneur and a business owner, you have to always think about like, do I take this as an income or do I reinvest it into the business to continue growing it so that I can scale and maybe even hire a couple more people uh, next year so I can take on another 10 clients, you know, or something like that to continue growing that business? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, um, revenue coming in does not mean uh, money going into your pocket or, or your bank, your personal bank account. In our case, when you're growing as quickly, I mean, in our early years, we were really small. We were growing 70, 80 percent a year. Uh, you have to uh, be hiring more people than you need earlier on so you can train them up and get them ready. So then when you sign, excuse me, sign the clients, uh, they're ready to go and provide awesome accounting and CFO services. So I'm paying salaries before I'm even utilizing these. Uh, mm -hmm. Similar, uh, you know, another type of business, uh, if you're selling a product, that product doesn't just magically appear in front of you. You have to you have to buy like the materials for the product or, or buy it already made and pay someone to, to get it manufactured. You have to pay to uh, ship it to where you are uh, mm -hmm. or to hold it at a 3PL. Um, there's a lot of costs and, and a lot of expenditures you have uh, to spend before you get the money in the door. And that, that whole period, that, that working capital cycle, the longer it is, the more cash you need. And the faster you're growing, the more cash you need to buy more products. So it, you know, it's, it's sort of counterintuitive. A lot of times the faster you're growing, the less cash you have and, uh, and definitely the less, you know, Ferraris that, that you're, you're driving around. Um, so here's, uh, before I, I ask my next question, I want to, I want to interject and ask one, one other question, every organization, um, you know, cause there's no standard, not really any standard there. Right. You see an organization have a CFO. And by the way, I do want to jump into what, why and when do you need a CFO? That's my next question. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, they have a CFO or they could have a director of finance. They have a controller, right? And there are other types of um, finance-related titles in organizations depending on, the, on their size, right? Mm -hmm. when, when does it make sense to bring on a CFO? Why do you need a CFO? At what stage of your company do you need a CFO versus having a director of finance or maybe just a hired accountant or a CPA? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. Um, I'd say there's general guidelines. It always, it always depends. Um, but you know, the, I think the traditional advice, um, if you Google, when do I need a CFO? Um, you know, you'll, you'll get answers like uh, business at 50 million in revenue a year uh, is when you should hire a CFO. 
Um, I think um, at a earlier point, you know, now there's a lot of providers out there. We're one of them that can provide like fractional CFO services and it can make a lot more sense, you know, even when a company's like, you know, approaching maybe 5 million a year, a few million in close to 5 million. A lot of times you can start getting some, some advice, which like you said, we'll sort of talk more about um, later. Prior, prior to that, um, you know, having, you know, a lot of companies start out, you're going to just have a bookkeeper in place. And, and that is just, uh, usually it starts out just from a compliance standpoint, you have to have bookkeeping done so you can give your tax accountant, uh, some financials so that your taxes can file and, and, and you keep the IRS happy. Uh, that's generally the starting point. Um, bookkeepers are good at entering data at some point though, you're, you're going to have questions and, and, and as a company grows and, uh, you need to have a better understanding of the financial picture. And, and especially if you're a business that, uh, you know, there's the period of time before between when you spend cash and when you make cash, um, then it's even more important to understand your financials. You can't just look at your bank account and know how you're doing because there's a time period and an investment period and a payback period. So those are, those are things when, when just bookkeeping sort of falls apart and as a company becomes, you know, a couple million revenue, they've got a traction and, 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 and a plan, something that works and they're trying to repeat it. Then you, then you need some, some, some more advice. And that, that's where, you know, a controller or a VP of finance can come in. Um, at bigger companies, they're very much different people. Usually a controller is looking at the accounting and what's happened and, a VP of finance will be looking forward and taking those numbers and projecting them. But at a, a company that's a few million, um, you know, you have one person that's sort of doing both there. Oh, got it. Okay. And um, I, I've seen some businesses and, uh, you know, I've had clients that um, I think they hired a CFO too early, you know, uh, like where they were in their growth cycle, um, a, a, an excellent CPA would have done a phenomenal job, right? Or, or maybe even a business advisor may have, would have done a, a phenomenal job with that instead of investing in, in that CFO. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah. Like, can you be too early in, in, in hiring a CFO? Yeah, you can be. I think um, I would agree with that. Uh, it's funny. You mentioned like a CPA would be great. I, I think um, it's funny as a, as a reformed CPA, as I, as I mentioned earlier, um, I think uh, a lot of times CPAs uh, can can get in the way of themselves and, and they're so focused on, um, you know, taxation or compliance or backward looking uh, that, um, you know, you have to find the right ones that are more proactive and, and uh and work with you on an ongoing basis. That's actually one of the, the core values that, that we focused on when I started this company was we want to be proactive for our clients. They should, we should be giving them information and handing it to them and pushing it on them instead of them like trying to pull it, you know, from, which is a, like a typical professional service provider. Um, but as far as um, hiring a CFO too early, uh, it definitely, it definitely can happen because you, you know, CFO uh, is very, can be very experienced. They're not cheap and uh, they're, they're there to be, you know, looking at the big picture 
and, and the strategy of the business. Um, but what we've seen, and, and you know, I'm going to speak from, from a focus on companies in the five to 50 million range of annual revenue. That's just what I, you know, I have the most experience with. Um, we've seen that it's really, you know, maybe 10% strategy and you need a little bit of, 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 of high level advice, but then it's all about execution. Uh, and, uh, that work, that grind, that accounting, the reporting, how did it do versus what we thought? Uh, let's change our, our forecast next period, report back. How did we do like, that's a grind and an execution. And that's stuff that, that CPAs like don't want to be doing. And, and that's 90% is what, that's what you need to be doing, especially when you're a smaller business is just executing over and over. Um, so having too, I'll, I'll, I'll rephrase what you said, instead of having a CFO too early, I'll say having too much of a CFO too early may not be helpful. Yeah, they might actually get in the way instead of helping. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, one of the experiences I, I've had, uh, it was a, uh, and I'm, I'm hoping that my, you know, the people who are involved in this company are not watching this episode. <laughs> uh, the poor CFO was made to, um, to kind of reforecast. It was, it was in the retail industry, specifically fashion retail, to reforecast um, the, the, the kind of the weekly outlook looking out like the next 12 weeks constantly it, it was an iterative process so I, I, I and i used to sit because I, I used to run a, a different unit of that company um and i used to sit through that and and i would go like poor guy he just did it last week and he has to do it again you know i mean for one part it made sense because of inventory issues because it's fashion it's like a banana on a hanger right mm -hmm. if you don't sell it this week next week it, it's going to go on sale or clearance or worse final clearance and then after that, you can burn it, you know, because nobody's going to buy it anymore, you know. So he had to do that constantly every single week. And and that was 52 weeks in a year, you know, con constant yeah. regurgitation. How did we sell? How are we selling? How, how are you going to look forward and how, how that's going to go? You know, and it was it was a constant battle all the time between him and the rest of the management. Yeah. And I bet. um I bet he uh, really enjoyed the first couple times and and creating the process and 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 the files and the template and working with the different departments to figure out what inputs you needed. Uh, I bet that part was awesome. And then uh, then it just the grind that that iterative the execution as I sort of alluded to drains them. So that that's really why um, you you need a combination of some strategy but a lot of execution. Oh yeah. Now, going back to earlier, you said uh, when, when you were talking about getting acquired by and, and merging with uh, with Orba, uh, you mentioned 1,200 clients. So I can tell you that well, with a handful of clients I have in, in, my, in my consulting business, they're all from different categories. And each one of them runs in a very different way, right? And now, if you have 1,200 of them, I can't even imagine the, the complexities of it. So how can uh, Orba and, and, and your team, um, you know, deliver, still deliver amazing value, right? You, that's your, that's your mantra, right? Amazing and awesome, right? Awesome. Uh, across 1,200 clients. And, and, and I'm sure that those 1,200 clients are from 50 different categories. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, 
you know, and then even within, even the ones within the same category, they all, they all, uh, operate somewhat differently too. Right. Um, so to be, to be clear, the 1200 business clients, that's what Orbo does on, on, on the handling for tax returns. And, um, so there's that angle doing tax prep and tax returns and tax strategy. Um, that, that really can, a lot of tax strategy can be boiled down to, um, only so many different strategies that you're focused on. So it doesn't necessarily matter that there's 50 different verticals. Uh, what matters is there's this, this many tax structures uh, that, that, that are uh, related to doing taxes and it kind of boils down. So you're not really handling 1200 different things. Now I am not a tax expert. I am a CPA. Uh, I am smart enough to know that I don't know anything about taxes. So I'm not involved uh, in that piece of the business. Um, my team, Orba Cloud CFO, um, we've we've served a couple hundred clients in our eleven years. Um, we do a lot, a lot for fewer clients than than just a little bit for for many clients. It's just we're, we're focused more on that more on that quality. Um, so you know, right now, I think we've got about sixty different clients that our group's working with. Uh, but even still, to your point, like how do you how do you work with those? And they're all they're all different. Um, and, and what I've seen is, um, I'll talk about it from an accounting standpoint and then from like a CFO strategy standpoint, from an accounting standpoint, operational accounting, which is one of the things we do kind of have a core package where we take over accounting operations. Um, that is very similar across industries, uh, business models, you know, paying bills is paying bills, uh, you know, running payroll is running payroll. Uh, on the invoicing side, on the revenue side, things can be can be different. But but again, there's only so many business models out there, and and that's really what drives how you do your work and when is the business model. And and that you know you can boil it down that you know there's I don't know uh, I don't know exactly whether how you define it, but six to eight maybe different underlying business models, like the actual blocks of how a business works. Um, so that's how you're able to kind of provide accounting operations to, to different clients across different industries. Um, as far as, you know, providing CFO advice, um, our, our focus is, is definitely on core business operations, cash flow. Um, you know, we're not pretending to know the benchmark financial ratios of every single industry out there. Um, but we do really focus our clients. And again, you know, five to 50 million is our range here. The focus is, is everybody has the economics of, of one that they have to worry about. Unit economics in their business model, every business has to worry about it. Um, you could be a professional services business uh, like us and uh, you know, we charge a flat monthly fee for our clients. Uh, and then we have a variable cost, which is our people's time, right? So there's a cost to every hour of our team. And so our unit of one is managing our hours on our team versus what we charge our clients. And we have to balance that for quality and, and profitability. Um, if you're an e-commerce um, business, your economics of one are like the, the traditional 
you know, you, you sell, you got a sale price for an item. Uh, you've got your product costs that go into it as well as selling and fulfillment costs. And you're left with a gross margin um, at the end of the day. So um, that's all economics, unit economics. Every business has to worry about that. So we really key, key in on that. Um, and then um, the other key part of, of, of business operations and cash flow is your is your operating overhead costs and um, you know knowing those buckets, understanding that, and understanding how much overhead, uh, what you know, what's your gross margin after all your individual sales, and comparing that to your overhead costs. Um, so those are really the things we key in on. Um, lots of metrics that we work with, but but it all boils down to those unit economics. Makes sense. Now, now you said five to five, uh, five to fifty million, right? Uh, several times. So let's go with the five million, right? Uh, five million. Let's say uh, businesses have gone to that five million mark, uh, and you talked about the fra- fractional uh, CFO. When have you seen? I'm going to ask the opposite question. When have you seen like it's five million dollars? Uh, they definitely need fractional or full CFO, right? They're in that sweet spot, right? But it didn't work out, and it, yeah. it doesn't work. Can you give me an example? Yeah, for sure. Um, so we um, we had a client that that came to us after it, it didn't work out with with another firm. So this was a um, this was a four million dollar. So you said five. That's close enough. Four million dollar um, uh, a year SaaS business. And they were B2B. So selling B2B large SaaS contracts. Um, so, you know, they're selling a bulk of a bunch of licenses. They're large annual contracts. You've got to deal with, you know, renewals on the contracts. Um, but the invoicing is, is done, you know, some upfront, some throughout, but that doesn't follow the actual recognition of revenue. So revenue recognition in, in, in software is always in B2B software, especially um, is always a huge thing. And, and it's fairly, uh, it's fairly complex. Um, and then, you know, you've got with that revenue recognition, there's a concept called deferred revenue. And, and, and it, when you're talking about a, a basic bookkeeper, that's something that doesn't make sense to a lot of them. So deferred revenue kind of simply is if let's pretend you, you have a one year contract with a client and you bill a hundred grand all at once up front and it covers the whole year. Mm-hmm. you are supposed to recognize a 12th of that revenue every month. So even though you collected the cash all up front, you're, you're, it, it, it's actually like you have a liability because you've got all the money now, but now you got to do the service for a whole year after that. So that's the concept of, of deferred revenue. Uh, and then you layer on top of that, you've got two metrics in the SaaS space that are really you know important is your MRR and NRR. So MRR is monthly recurring revenue. So, uh, um, or annual recurring revenue, if you're focusing on a, on a yearly basis, and NRR would be your non-recurring revenue. So um, a CFO who's wanting to analyze and who has experience, you know, working with SaaS businesses, they they really want to um, understand uh, what's the anticipated, um, you know, cash flow for the business and be able to project that out. Um, they really need to know what is that MRR so that 
even though the company's getting cash early, are they stabilized so that they're profitable uh, on a like an accrual basis? And um, so there's a, the, this company, they had a, a fractional CFO. They also had a, uh, a bookkeeper, uh, which was an individual that was, you know, doing basic cash basis bookkeeping. And um, the CFO, you know, kind of came in and said, you know, just everyone started pointing fingers like I can't work. You know, I can't provide you uh, a cash flow forecast because I don't have all the details on all of your contracts for your 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 enterprise B2B contracts. And I need to know those details so that I can understand the renewal and the, and the and the fees. And and the bookkeeper's like, well, I invoiced it, you know, and I collected your money and I'm recording everything as it hits the bank account. And so there were a lot of pointing fingers because you have the CFO that doesn't want to roll up the sleeves and just wants to talk strategy, but you don't have the underlying bookkeeping data there that the execution part that we keep talking about wasn't up, up to snuff for the CFO. Uh, and it, and so that, that situation sort of fell apart. Um, they, they came to us uh, because we kind of offer the full, you know, accounting and finance stack from, from that bookkeeping and accounting up to the CFO. And so, you know, we can't point fingers at anyone but ourselves. So when, when we get that, Chris, Chris, I'll I'll tell you something. When you do this, you know, finger pointing like this, you're pointing one finger at the other person. The other three are pointing towards you. And and one finger is blaming God. If you believe in (laughs) in God, you know, I like that. I like that. (laughs) So anytime you point finger, it's you. It's, it's not the other person. It's you. (laughs) Yeah. So, in, you know, in this case, um, they needed a CFO that was more willing to roll up their sleeves. Uh, it definitely wasn't, you know, they didn't have a good fit for that person. So I don't want to blame that CFOs are bad at that role, but it, it is that, you know, it, you need more than just a CFO role there. You need someone who can execute on the data. And, and I go back to it. It's, it, it's 90% execution and, and you need, you need someone that can handle that. Yeah. I mean, one thing that uh, I had Gary V on this show, and one of the things that he w- that he says is uh, ideas are shit, uh, execution is everything. You know, that's his saying. It's a variation of a very popular saying, but uh, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, what's what's the use of the strategy if you don't execute properly? You know, uh, right. what what do you see is a good balance of of strategy and execution in, from your perspective? Yeah, I so we we um. I'm not saying this is uh, the best way to think about it, but this is sort of how we've developed um, our offering over over the 11 years. Um, we have what we call an awesome package. So we've got our core package, which provides that that accounting, that managed accounting services, that month to month kind of grind. Uh, then you know you can layer on an awesome package, which it is called the awesome package, um, and that's the CFO layer that, that, that we have. And so um, that layer provides um, updated, you know, forecasting and tracking of metrics throughout the year. But I think the best part of it is we do um, semi-annual CFO strategy checkups. So twice a year, um, we bring in a CFO that's not part of the month to month delivery, like accounting team. Um, you know, so they have a fresh set of eyes. 
They're not burdened by, you know, if they think something needs to change, they don't have to then go change it themselves. They can just talk strategy uh, and then we leave it to our delivery team to do the execution. Um, so, so that's how we structure it. And, and that seems to be a good amount. Could it be quarterly? It could be quarterly. Definitely. I don't think the strategy monthly makes sense. I think quarterly, even, you know, to be honest, like time flies and, and all of a sudden, boom, you're three months later and it's tough for businesses to truly make a lot of change. So I, I, I found that, 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 you know, twice a year kind of strategy check-in um, where you ever just like sits back and you analyze things and you're not doing for a little while. That's, that's beneficial. Yeah. One of the exercises like every company goes through or should go through, right? I've, I've, I'm surprised also with some of my clients, you know, one is budgeting, right? Knowing how you're going to spend your money, let's say, uh, you know, next year or something like that. And then uh, in those examples, you gave uh, forecasting, right? Forecasting your revenue, forecasting any kind of capital expenses, one-time expenses versus recurring expenses that are going to be coming up. Uh, in addition to like, how do you anticipate revenue uh, flowing into the company and seasonality and all that kind of stuff? Uh, am I missing anything from from the, from those two things like budgeting and forecasting? And then you're in execution, right? Uh, you, you should report against how did you do based on your budget that you or your forecast that you had uh, set up. Yeah, and this is again where you want to balance uh, strategy with execution. So um, I've seen, you know, you, a CFO will love to. They like to do budgeting. They don't love it, but they love to do forecasting and 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 modeling and and creating this great spreadsheet, right? It's like <laughs> a work of art, and and you know they want to put it on their wall. Um, they enjoy the process of building it, sort of like I you know I mentioned I mentioned earlier. Um, but then it sits there and it collects proverbial dust, I guess, um, and and doesn't get used. And and after that creation, the using of it during the year where that execution is um, is really where you, I think you get a lot of value out of budgeting and forecasting. And and too many companies don't actually consistently report and, and go back and say how how did my actuals do against my budget or my forecast. And then ask the, the, the million dollar question or hundred thousand dollar question in this case of, um, of uh, you know, why? Why did we do differently? And that can lead to great conversations. And, and then it allows the business to iterate and change what they're doing operationally and change their forecast for the future. And they just you keep dialing it in. It's, it's never done. It's a process. Uh, budgeting forecasting is not a once a year thing. It is throughout the year. You keep dialing it in and keep changing because nobody really knows what's going to happen. It's like you make a guess, you try it, report back like a scientific method, right? Hypothesis, uh, do the test, report back, new hypothesis. And optimize. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the example I gave of that fashion retailer, I think that was excessive to do it weekly. What, what do you think is the right momentum? Is it is, is it a shorter review monthly and but but a much more massive deep dive quarterly? I, I think so. I think month I think monthly, especially when you're you know that industry that, that you said, I think updating your forecasting um, every month for that as well as many other industries can make a lot of sense. But um, you, you're not maybe redoing all things, but you're definitely looking at your revenue and, and pipeline and, and redoing it. I think monthly makes a ton of sense. I think, I think it's quarterly where you can start 
really stopping and sitting back and saying, why? Quarterly to semi-annually is, is really, what I think, where you want to dig in and, and think about the why. Now, now, since we're talking about this 5 to $50 million range, which to me is a, uh, a small business growing up, you know, like almost like a middle market getting there, but it's, 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 a, it's a growing small business. What are some of the growing pains uh, of, of this uh, sweet spot, right, for you? Where do you see, what are the growing pains of these companies, these clients that you see? What are their financial growing pains? And, and, and what can their like financial team do a better job of, you know, to, to ease that pain? Yeah, so lots of growing pains. You said financial growing pain. So we're going to kind of focus focus on that here. Um, I, I think um, the number one pain that I've seen in that range is having a, a weak financial controller at the helm. So, you know, you might have a fractional CFO in there doing things, but they're not, they're, they shouldn't be full-time yet. So your controller really is running, running things and having a weak financial controller can really hold the business back. And, uh, you know, it, it happens a lot. So the company, few million in revenue, they've outgrown their bookkeeper. Now they hire for a controller, but there's still only a few million, you know, from a, from a business perspective, still very small. And you get a controller that likes the doing and and paying bills and entering data and reconciling the bank account. And then all of a sudden the business becomes, uh, you know, 10, 20 million. They can't be doing that. They need to step back and provide insight. Um, so um, so I think that's the biggest pain. And it usually shows up in that the financials are always behind. They're never done. You know, you're sitting here, it's April 20th and, and they're trying to close out February yet because it's too much detail, not enough high level. There's always a balance. Um, so you're never going to get perfect financials because there's always assumptions built in. You got to make us make good enough, be good enough and move on. Um, let's see. They also, you know, if they don't truly understand your business model, then they're just not going to kind of know how to give you financial in you as the owner or give you insight into the numbers and what they mean. They're just going to, you know, here's a PL, here's a balance sheet. And, you know, CEO's like, and here are the number. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thanks. I'll see you next month, I guess, you know? <laughs> um, so, so those are, so that's probably the number one um, biggest pain point uh, that, uh, that I've seen there. So the, the next question uh, I'm going to ask you has to do with, two gigantic topics, right? And each one of them have their own set of pain and challenges. One is scaling a company. And then number two is profitability, right? And and the 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 episode title here, the way we promote it is scaling profitably, right? Doing those two things at the same time. So what can what can reduce profitability as the company grows? You know, what are some of the gems that you could share there between, you know, from, from this growing company of five to $50 million? Sure. And, and I, you know, at the beginning, I alluded to the fact I was, I was growing and scaling my business early on, but there wasn't any profits there for me to take. Right. So these are, these are uh, two things that like to go in opposite directions when you're scaling and, and being profitable. So, I mean, uh, as an example, have- Chris, uh, uh, Amazon, since its birth, Amazon.com, from since its birth till I think a couple of years ago, was was not profitable. But they were scaling like this, 
-hmm. And now they have pro they have profitability to show in the business, you know? Right. Um, yeah. So I think to scale profitably, so let's find that, you know, Venn diagram and have them overlap now scaling and profitability. Um, I think probably the number one biggest uh, thing that I see companies not doing that causes them to, you know, reduce profitably so, uh, is, is not having the right technology and, and systems in place. Um, and, you know, usually that involves if you're in this phase, you, you, you need an ERP. Now, um, you know, the, before you get to five mil or even on the low end of this, you know, maybe a five mil range, you can get by with like an, an accounting system, like QuickBooks, right? Um, but then you all of a sudden you'll start seeing you have all these spreadsheets um, over here and, and, and maybe a CRM over here and all these little systems start getting added um, one by one without much thought for how to bring it all together. And they just don't talk to each other. And, and, and that becomes a problem as, as the business tries to scale and, and um, can actually reduce profitability. Um, so there's actually an example. Um, we, uh, we have a marketing agency that's a current client of ours. And um, they're in the, uh, they're actually in the 20, 20 mil range and grow, they've been growing fast uh, and they're still, they're on QuickBooks. And we're actually oh, in wow. the process. Uh, yeah, um, we're in the process right now of working with them to to implement NetSuite. Um, so NetSuite ERP, we partnered with them four years ago. Um, I'm not saying it's the only option. I'm not saying it's the best option, but I've done a lot of systems conversions in my career, and we really liked what we saw with NetSuite, and we saw it. It's capable, it's it's flexible, and really can apply to a lot of different verticals. It doesn't maybe come out of the box ready to go, but it's pretty flexible and it's definitely scalable. Um, so um, we are implementing NetSuite with them. We found that you know they had QuickBooks, but then they had these sales reps selling to their clients, and each sales rep um, had their list of customer orders they were managing at a time. And, and some kept it on Google Sheets, some kept it in Excel, uh, some probably on paper, I'm not quite sure. The CEO had no idea, like, what is our current open orders and all the projects that we are managing and what's that value, much less what's our pipeline. Um, so just a lot of disaggregated uh, information. Um, and they were, you know, they were managing about a hundred projects at any given time too. This is not no small feat. Um, and so, you know, they definitely weren't properly looking at profitability by a project, every analysis on a project, it was just all, everything's ad, ad hoc, one off in a spreadsheet when needed, but nothing brought together in a full system. Um, so, uh, us working with them, uh, implementing NetSuite. It's going to bring all the orders for all the reps together and you can see a status at any given time of where a project sits who it's sitting on if they have to buy um or, or have product printed or, or buy cardboard for their marketing displays we know where the purchase order sits and the status with the vendor so and an expected receipt date so they can then finally deliver to their customer uh, it just gets everything together um and all of that, I'm not talking. I haven't even talk, I haven't spoken about financials, right? It's just really data, and mm -hmm. and bringing it all together so the business can operate. But all of those transactions tie directly to the financials, then, and um, you can't miss billing a project because it's all integrated. It's one step of the process. So um, I'd say that's uh, 
that's one of the, the, the biggest things you can do to help scale profitably is having a proper, you know, ERP system and setup of systems. And, and, and having that um, control over the data so that you understand what's happening with your business, right? Yeah. Uh, and this is why you hear sometimes in the news or even trade journals, the XYZ company just blew up, boom, implosion, right? And because when they went to the bank to pay off the creditors or, or stuff like that, because they didn't have the right financial controls in place, they didn't know how the business was doing, right? And then that's why it just evaporates overnight, Yeah, unfortunately. Sure. Um, now, now, the topic of like raising capital and you and I in the green room, we talked about what raising capital means. It could have many different meanings. I, and I want you to take that uh, and and just just run with that. Uh, in what ways can can a CFO help with raising capital, and what what does raising capital mean? Yeah. Um, so raising capital can take many forms, and it can be uh, the form I took when I sold my business. You know, that's more of a M and A result of I didn't have enough capital. I was growing a business and, and we were mar we had profit margins and were profitable at the client level, but I still didn't have enough to cover my overhead. That was, that was why I was, I was burning cash, but still growing a, a business that had a lot of traction and made a lot of sense. So, um, so I went the route of uh, being acquired by Orba, as I mentioned earlier. So that's, that's one angle doing sort of M and a, but there's other angles of, uh, you know, if you're a smaller company looking at, uh, venture uh, uh, investment where you're giving up a, a piece of equity in the company. Um, a larger scale of that would be private equity where you're at the higher end of that, you know, five to 50 million range and, uh, and inv professional investors are coming in and take a stake in your business. And, and usually on the private equity side, uh, you know, they're providing some operational expertise to you uh, to, to help you grow. Um, so those are all sort of equity forms. You also have, um, debt that you can raise, which doesn't give away your equity. Um, and, and, you know, you get it from banks or private lenders. Uh, you know, the, the, the great thing about debt is you're not giving up equity, but you have to make payments back and that can hit your cash flow. So sometimes, uh, if you're scaling very quickly, debt can't, you know, it actually gets in your way too. So, but there's different ways to raise capital. Very cool. Uh, I mean, there are also like uh, joint ventures or even selling off a, a, a part of your business unit, if you can define it that way, right? Mm -hmm. uh, like if you, if it's a, uh, if something that you had invested in, but in the long run, you don't want to carry it still, but somebody else could find it useful. You could sell off that part of the business and not sell the entire business uh, to raise capital in that sense. Yeah, true. You, definitely. That's a, that's a great point and kind of focus on your core and um, a similar example. Um, we, we have a, uh, a client, they're a, a cannabis brand that they, they manufacture their own cannabis and today's 420. So shout out to them. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I promise I didn't pick that because of the date. I just realized it after the fact, um, but they, uh, they have two production facilities. Their brand is really well respected, everything they can produce, they sell. Good problem to have. Um, so they needed capital to um, to expand their facilities so that they could produce more because they knew they had a market there that, that they could sell. So, and then um, 
they were just they're just selling currently in California, but they want to sell across the, the whole US. And so they were looking, there's all these different strategies you can take with capital raising. Some are better than others, at, at, depending on timing. And in their case, they're like, let's get a big, huge equity investment so we can open up our third facility, our fourth facility and expand nationwide. And uh, in that case, what they were looking at, they were going to dilute themselves. They were now going to be a minority owner. They were going to give up majority stake to these investors if they were going to take this approach. And, you know, we kind of said, hey, you can't do all this at once anyway. Um, your, your plan, operational plan is open. The third facility is already there. You just have to build it out. And then the fourth facility, you're going to build it from scratch. And only after you do those two things are you going to go um, national anyway. So let's let's break this down, take it in parts, and have, let's have some strategy here. And so when we broke it down, we realized the build out of the third space you can fund from your cash flow that you already have, and the building of the fourth facility you can bring on debt um, to to cover that. And once you do that, you're going to be doubling your current output. You're going to be doubling or more your valuation then go do an equity round to, and get a strategic investor that can help you go, uh, you know, go across the U.S. And you're, you won't give up a majority stake of the business at that point because you'll be double valuation. So that's a, you know, one example of, of strategy there. Now, um, uh, you know, I, I love this, the next question I'm going to ask you because uh, I ask every guest this question, you know, uh, and it has to do because of the times we are living in right now. Uh, and pandemic has disrupted some in a very positive way, like the adoption of e-commerce, some in a very negative way. That means business retail businesses shutting down and stuff like that. So from from a CFO's perspective, how how can how can uh, a, a CFO help navigate a, a company through those kind of environments? You know, things related to the great resignation and so on and so forth. You know, I mean, there are so many. A pandemic is a mixed bag. Sure is. Um, yeah, and, and no matter what your business, it uh, it, it affects you. Uh, we've been fortunate from, from a demand perspective for our services, everything we've always done. We were using Zoom back in 2012 uh, to deliver our accounting virtually. So we've seen an uptick in, in since COVID. But at the same time, I've never had a harder time hiring people. So our biggest problem right now is not customer acquisition. It's employee acquisition and 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 keeping them and reducing that churn. So it hits everybody. Um, so you know, I'd say you know I could give a million examples here. Um, we work with uh, a number of um, e-commerce and manufacturing brands, um, and so you know, one example I have is one in the dental industry, and um, they they. Their product is uh, a lot of the raw materials are supplied from overseas. So they're having massive shipping delays and they're <laughs> short on their product. Um, and they have more demand for their product than they have. They actually have of the product, right? So they have a supply demand uh, issue. So some people, you know, there's a strategy there where, hey, just raise your prices uh, and, and, you know, to balance out the supply and demand. Uh, because of this, in this case, the client didn't want to like gouge their customers because of that, which which I totally understand. Um, but there there was an approach we could look at here, and uh, 
uh, they're on NetSuite as well. And, and there's actually like a cool feature, you know, NetSuite's not the only ERP that has this, but you can take all of your open sales orders in a, in a, in a good ERP system and it'll show you, hey, you're, you know, you can only fulfill some of these because you don't have enough on hand. You can choose to have it prioritize what orders you're going to fulfill based upon what you have on hand. And it'll it'll rank them by um, gross profit margin, by whatever you're selling to for each of those customers. Some some customers, you have a higher profit margin than others. Um, so if you're limited on supply, focus on the higher margin uh, customers. You get a bigger, more bang for the buck for the inventory that that you do have on time uh, available. I mean, that's very relatable. I can tell you from my e-commerce clients, right? Uh, supply chain issues uh, of getting goods made in China or somewhere in Asia, putting it on a shipping uh, on, on a ship to actually get it uh, hauled over to United States. Uh, the cost of shipping container, forget about the freight. <laughs> the container has 12x year over year, 12x, not 12%, 12x the cost of shipping container. You know, uh, finding shipping containers are, are very difficult and, and, and uh, mounted on top of it. If you're in the food industry, the effects of a war in Ukraine, for example, is causing disruptions also where it's not just equipment. It's also food uh, to certain countries that, that or, or certain types of food. Where, where you could be using it as an ingredient to make uh, your finished product and you cannot get get those things and you now you're in, in trouble now. Yeah, um, we've been saying for over two years now, we live in unprecedented times, right? I, I wish we could stop saying that. <laughs> um, so, so, oh, go ahead, you're gonna say something? No, no, I think, uh, uh, I think there's a um, Japanese or a Chinese saying that uh, may you live in interesting times right it's yeah. not, it's not a good saying <laughs> yeah. that's true yeah we well we're definitely winning winning at that right now um yeah so you you mentioned freight and and um so during rising costs times like this uh a cfo really needs to help a business make sure they're raising their prices to to keep their margins right and and that whether you're a people business like us i'm paying people way more now than i had to before we just gave a mid-year raise to everyone on our team uh, to, to keep them around because we saw a market adjustment. Um, if you're buying products that's going up, you, you need to raise your prices. Um, freight specifically, like you said, it's insane. Um, a good system uh, will can keep track of what's called landed cost for products. And it'll let you uh, take the freight costs for bringing something uh, into your warehouse and, and allocate it to those items that came in the freight. And that way, when you sell those items, you you know your true margin, which is after, in this case, massively higher uh, freight costs. So, so the landed cost functionality is something that a you know a CFO should should be thinking about and 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 helping the company put into place if they don't have it already. I mean, one of the things that I've advised all of my clients now is uh, because uh, FedEx, UPS, and uh, uh, even Amazon they alerted their clients that uh, the, all of their customers that there's a rate increase because due to two reasons. One is inflation. Number two is fuel surcharge. And so when you're thinking about, especially for a product business, when, when you're utilizing, like all e-commerce businesses do, when you're utilizing that, uh, uh, you know, UPS, FedEx, 
uh, USPS or, or you're selling on Amazon and you utilize Amazon FBA, that you need to take that into account when you're thinking about your gross margin, right? It's not the same number as it last year. It's, in fact, it's not the same number as it was in January because of what's going on right now, you know, with, with fuel surcharges and, you know, it was $2.50 and now it's six bucks per gallon, right? Uh, for, for gas prices. So that's going to be reflected in, in your cost of doing business when you're thinking about logistics of uh, delivering your service or products, you know, and, and that will have definitely an effect on it. So reevaluating that is really important. Yeah. And, and getting out of the mindset that you do it once a year, because it's not, not yeah. frequent enough right now. Things are rising too fast. You, you got to be looking at it uh, at least quarterly. Yeah. Because your vendors are going to alert you. They'll tell you like, look, here's a surcharge and I'm going to hear, I'm, I have to pass it to you. And you have to figure out what you need to do with that. So, I mean, that's a ton of amazing, amazing uh, information and, and uh, insights into uh, CFO. Now, Chris, what is your number one $100,000 expert insight into scaling profitably from a CFO's perspective? I love this question. Um, you know, for me, when, when I think about scaling profitably, um, acquisition, customer acquisition is is to me, the most important thing. And so there's uh, some metrics there, CAC, which is customer acquisition costs and, and CLV, customer lifetime value. Uh, so CAC real quickly, I'm not gonna do the formulas, is, is average cost to bring on a customer for a business and customer lifetime value is on average over the, the life that a customer sticks around with you, how much profit, how much gross profit do you make from them during that period? Um, so, uh, key ratio you want between them is a three to one ratio. So for every dollar you spend to acquire a new customer, you want $3 coming back from them in their lifetime. That that's, that's that uh, magic ratio. Uh, a lot of people talk about this. Uh, you can look at, you'll, you'll find a lot of insight on it. What I'm going to say is sort of the flip side of that and, and talk to you about, uh, my, my tip here is a lot focusing on allowable CAC. So what the heck is that? That is the opposite. That's figuring out what are your what's a customer worth to you um, in their lifetime value. Figuring out your lifetime value, divide that by three, and back into how much can you spend to acquire a customer. I don't think a lot of people think of it that way, uh, and they always try to think, of, well, how do I reduce my CAC? I need to spend less. Um, I think there's a bigger risk for a lot of businesses, and they're not growing fast enough because they're not spending as much as they could be on their CAC. Now, I'll give you quick some quick numbers here. Uh, for us, average client spends five grand a month with us. We make about two grand of gross margin a month. They stick, stick with us for about 50 months, about four years on average. So two grand times 50 months, 100 grand is a lifetime value for, for a client for us. That's big. Divide that by three. I could be spending 33 grand per client to acquire them. I can tell you I spend nowhere near that right now because my bottleneck is, is on getting employees, like I mentioned earlier. But knowing that is, is empowering. And when I'm able to remove the, the hiring bottleneck, uh, I know that I can spend a lot more and grow a lot quicker to acquire business uh, by knowing this, uh, this ratio and, and understanding what my allowable CAC is. So there you have it. To just kind of add on to it and then, uh, you know, uh, just to add on to it, 
from an e-commerce perspective, we, we also look at a return on advertising spend, right? That's the other side of that equation, right? And, and knowing how much are you willing to acquire, and I love the fact that you're dividing it by three, given, let's say, a three-year lifetime, right? Uh, and and um, investing that number, and, and that, that's your allowable CAC, like that's the ceiling. But mm-hmm. you, can, you, can, you can tell your agency, like, you cannot spend more than $33,000 uh, to acquire customers for me, you know? But but I wouldn't give them that number. I would give them a tenth of that number. Definitely. <laughs> they think that that's the normal number. Well, Chris, thank you uh, for, for joining us uh, today. And uh, thank you for sharing your insights into CFO. This, this has been tremendously educational for me and definitely for my audience. Uh, and audience, live audience, thank you very much for tuning in. And, uh, and if you're catching this on a recording somewhere, hit the like button and subscribe. Uh, there are many other uh, uh, interesting guests and experts that are coming up now that want to take care of your business. So, uh, pl- uh, and, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Sabir. It's been fun.